The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody. Happy to have you at the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, am solemnly dedicated to revealing how the world really works. And, uh, of course, well, gosh, uh, the way the world really works is that uh, week after week, I struggle with what to include in the podcast. What should be the topic of the podcast this, uh, this particular week for this particular show? And I have to tell you that my challenge is never, what shall I talk about? Where, oh, where can I find something of interest? No, not at all. My challenge each and every week is, what do I leave out? Because long-time listeners to the show will remember that the show used to be two hours, two hours and ten minutes. The show was a long show. But uh, in uh, trying to poll your responses, and so many of you responded to my questions of what you felt was the the length you wanted. Uh, Many people felt that two hours was just too long. And so uh, I cut it down, and then I went to half an hour, and some people said, no, nah, that, that's a little bit short. Anyway, I, I, um, I have a limited amount of time. Whatever the length of the show, there is a limited amount of time, which invariably means that during the course of the week, as I deal with uh, numerous topics and ideas and thoughts, I always have to put a line through a whole bunch of them and say, no, nah, we're going to have to put that off for another time. Can't deal with that now. So... Uh, Let's, let's get going. I'm actually taping this show in Jerusalem, where I'm teaching for a few days. Uh, I'll be home very shortly. But uh, uh, here in Jerusalem, the holiday of Simchat Torah has just concluded. Um, in the United States and anywhere else out of Israel, uh, the holiday uh, continues through Friday. But um, in Israel, the holiday of the rejoicing of the Torah ends on Thursday night. And uh, so for uh, the holiday of Simchat Torah, for 24 hours, literally, I mean, it, it just doesn't stop. Uh, the celebration spills out of homes, out of synagogues, into the streets, into parks, into plazas. And uh, almost wherever you go throughout Jerusalem, you're going to find people celebrating a 3,330-year-old text. I mean, that's, that's what's so astounding. Uh, people are dancing with Torahs. People are, are spending the entire night studying the Torah. It's a day just dedicated to the celebration of this book of the Bible, the five books of Moses. And, uh, and, and here's what's so interesting is that as, and Susan and I did a lot of walking around Jerusalem. Okay, we don't ride in a car. We don't travel in a car on a, a religious holiday like Simchat Torah. And so we walked miles and miles around Jerusalem just 
wanting to take in the celebrations, to stop and talk to people and, and ask them what they felt about the celebration. I wish I could have recorded it, but I don't use recording equipment or electronics either uh, on the, the holiday of Simchat Torah. So, um, so, so there are all these people celebrating, and the celebration went on literally until Thursday night. Today, Friday, those very same people that we spoke to who were dancing and singing joyfully about this 3,000 plus year old text, today, these people are writing software for artificial intelligence. They are designing self-driving uh, car guidance systems. Uh, a few of them are busy building an 800-foot solar tower in the Negev, surrounded by many, many acres of heliostatic mirrors. These are mirrors that adjust to follow the sun and to shine the sun's rays onto a big boiler, a water boiler on the top of the tower, which then um, converts the, the water into steam. The steam drives a conventional steam turbine, which then drives a power station, a generator. And so this is one of the, uh, uh, one of the attempts. Again, the, the south of Israel has almost nonstop uh, sunlight during the daytime hours. And so they are experimenting on uh, how viable and how economically viable uh, electricity can be generated in this fashion. And several of the engineers working on this thing, and I'm talking about extremely advanced mechanical and electrical engineering, uh, these guys spent the day before dancing with the Torah. And, um, uh, you know, that, that's, that's not all. Uh, we spoke to people working on desalinization projects, irrigation projects. These are people using high technology um, drip irrigation, by the way, which is an incredibly efficient way of irrigating, uh, designed here in Israel. Uh, Israel leads in desalinization. And, and, um, and many of them we spoke to yesterday were army reservists and were, were <laughs> their submachine guns were slung over their shoulders. That's right. Even in synagogue, even while they're dancing with the Torah, why? Just in case there is another... And, you know, unexpected terrorist attack, as all, all of them are. And so there should be somebody on hand uh, to quickly shoot dead the person before he can do more damage than he's already done. So uh, there are all these guys. Uh, and the, the point I'm making is that we're not talking about uh, men and women detached from the world. And yes, women were dancing with the Torah as well. Uh, we're not talking about people who are detached from the modern world. On the contrary, we're talking about people who are shaping the modern world and who nonetheless feel overwhelmed by passion and enthusiasm for this Bible, for this text over 3,000 years old, so much so that they take a day off work and they don't go to the beach and they don't go picnicking and they don't go to sports events. They celebrate the giving of the Torah. Look, th this was something extraordinary to experience and uh, extraordinary to understand that for these people, uh, there is absolutely no clash at all between striving for technological accomplishment, uh, modern achievement, and on the other hand, their deep and undying devotion to this uh, book, The Constitution of the Jewish People. 
And so, again, not surprisingly, uh, I felt perfectly at home and comfortable with them. Now, why is it that these people who are on the cutting edge of technology, why are they at the same time obsessed with this age-old text? Right? You don't find, for the most part, uh, when I'm visiting Silicon Valley and I'm talking to electronic engineers in Northern California, um, you, know, you don't run into a lot of them who uh, are devoted to medieval German literature or uh, old English. Uh, when I speak to aeronautical engineers in, in Florida and uh, in Southern California, you know, I, I've yet to have any one of them come up to me say, and say, you know, in my off time, I really love delving into uh, Russian uh, plays or, uh, or, or early uh, music. No, I don't come across that. But here in Israel, all of these people, they seem to be very comfortable. Uh, and, and in fact, don't think for a moment that it's only one day a year that their devotion to scripture finds expression. No, not at all. Uh, most of them uh, participate in Torah study sessions at least once a week, many, many of them more than once a week. And uh, in, in a city like Jerusalem, and this is not unique, I mean, in, in every city in Israel, uh, on any night of the week, you can literally take your pick of huge numbers of Torah classes going on. And, uh, and I'm contributing to that in, in, in my own small way, uh, having been asked to come and give some classes um, here in Jerusalem. I'm very excited. And I, I love being able to do that. But so, you know, why? Why are these people doing that? What is really going on? In other words, what makes these people different or what makes uh, the Torah different? Why is it that these scientists and engineers and mathematicians and te te technologists, and by the way, a whole lot of other people, uh, who, who are not in, in high-tech field. I mean, it, it's like the whole country gets into a, a, a passionate and exuberant and irrepressible celebration of a book that, for heaven's sake, it's been around for 3,330 years. What's that all about? Why? And uh, what I'd like to do is tell you about that just as soon as we come back. Why they find meaning and value. Not just one day a year, but many times a week in most cases. Uh, your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and uh, I implore you to uh, visit my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Why do I implore you? How do you like that word, right? Instead of begging and beseeching, today I'm imploring. Uh, reason? Well, uh, first of all, it's a way for you to communicate with us and uh, when you go on our website, there'll be a place you can click on Contact Us, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, there's also places where you can read uh, a whole lot of material that we've published recently, uh, stuff that in many instances doesn't appear anywhere else. You can also um, have a chance to wade through our store and find the resources that we have created to enhance your lives in the areas of faith, finance, and family and friendships, uh, social connections, family connections, uh, connections with God, and yes, connections with your money. All of these things, crucial 
to living a successful life, improving the life you live, helping others who are starting off live their life successfully. And, and we feel that by the time, if you've got your family and friendships in great shape and your finances in great shape, and uh, for those of you who are religious, your connection with God is in good shape, you know what? Life's pretty good. You don't have a lot to grumble about, right? And uh, that's what we work on trying to make accessible using the resources of ancient Jewish wisdom. So stop by rabbidaniellappin.com, okay? And uh, let's hear from you. Be right back. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. You want to save money in a place that gives you growth, control, and certainty without stock market risk or tax risk, and you want guarantees and you want it all tax-free. That's a tall order. But you can get all of that with properly designed participating whole life insurance. Most people think life insurance pays after you're dead. That's true. But you can have tax-free access to use your life insurance while you're alive. Get the free book to find out how. Call 702-660- Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, revealing how the world really works. And uh, one of the ways the world really works is that we are far freer to explore and to adventure and to reach beyond the horizon. As long as we are tethered to the things that anchor us to reality. And this is one of the reasons that uh, a slogan I use, not only in my own life, but in our ministry and here on this show, is that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And, uh, And I've always believed that this is really a very helpful credo because uh, I don't mind. I don't mind exploring the unknown as long as I always know where I'm centered. And that is a clue to why it is that so many people who are at the cutting edge of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, chemistry, biology, why so many of them are deeply committed religious people, people who take the Bible very seriously. And that's because as much as technology changes, and you must realize, of course, that technology, <laughs> it didn't sort of show up in 1980 with the, uh, with the internet, right? Uh, technology existed before that. Technology didn't exist, didn't come into being in uh, 1939 uh, on the eve of World War II. Technology, we tend to think of today as extremely exciting and cutting edge news, but it's always been. Technology has always been uh, the way we human beings use our God-given intelligence and drive and ambition to find ways to enhance our lives, to distinguish ourselves from animals, so as we do not have to be hunter-gatherers 24-7 so that, in fact, we can reduce the extent of drudgery we have to do, theoretically, at least, freeing us up 
to be able to devote more of our lives to activities that our souls find meaningful. And so, yes, uh, technology um, in the uh, 1700s uh, revolved about around steam, you know, how to, and, and weaponry. Uh, it was a lot of that. Technology in the 1800s began to, to be, uh, for the first time, telegraphic communications in 1844 and, uh, and, and onwards with uh, eventually radio and then television and you, you know the rest of it. Um, earlier than the Industrial Revolution before steam, there was also technology uh, finding ways to heat homes better ways to, to burn, instead of burning wood, burning coal, instead of burning coal, burning oil, uh, ways of, of irrigating. You can go back, uh, as uh, my wife and I were taken to a museum here in Jerusalem a few days ago, and, um, and you know, we were shown a very um, plausible uh, archaeological indications of... Um, irrigation and drainage tunnels carved through rock. Yes, um, you know, two and a half thousand years ago in biblical times. As a matter of fact, um, we were special guests of uh, one organization that actually took us through a tunnel that ran from the Shalom pools underground all the way up to the Western Wall within the walled city of Jerusalem. A long tunnel, we were walking, uh, crouched at sometimes, uh, the sides of the tunnel, uh, pulling at our clothing, carved through solid rock. Uh, we've, we walked through water cisterns. This is all technology. I mean, how, uh, cutting through that solid rock was incredibly tough and arduous. And, and here's an interesting one, by the way. Uh, this tunnel was commenced at, at both ends. They met in the middle. And they were only off by about, uh, it looked like about, you can actually see where they met, and <laughs> about 12 inches off, about a foot off maximum, no more than that. How did they do that? Uh, I have absolutely no idea. I can speculate, but I have no idea at all. Uh, look, these things are astounding. I, I was fascinated this past summer uh, realizing that an, a, a tunnel was dug from... Uh, mainland uh, British Columbia under Seymour uh, Narrows um, all the way and then up into a rock that uh, jeopardized chipping. And again, you know, if they'd come up anywhere other than where the rock was, uh, huge volumes of water would have rushed into the tunnel, drowning out all the, the, the tunnelers, and yet they came up right. How do you do that? You know, laser today makes it a lot easier. GPS makes it easier. But how about in the early 1950s? And now go back two and a half thousand years. Anyway, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that technology is a modern word for something that human beings have been engaged in from the very beginning of the human story. Uh, technology is nothing other than trying to make the job of living easier in such a way so we have to devote less time and energy to staying alive and being able to do all kinds of other things. Uh, medical technology, right? We've always tried to, human beings have always tried, sometimes misguidedly, uh, to improve health. And it's always been technology that's done it. Now, 
it might have been very primitive. All right, when they took leeches, it's a, it's a really ugly kind of insect, and put it on people's skins because they believed that drawing blood uh, was valuable and important, a way to cure certain diseases. As far as I know, today we, we don't regard there to be any medical legitimacy to that whatsoever, but at the time, that was the state of medical technology. Okay, so um, that's what technology is. And, uh, and, and as you're moving forward in, in a cutting-edge manner uh, to, the, to the very edge of human knowledge, I think for people in that field, it is particularly comfortable, it's particularly reassuring to know that they also understand the principles that never change. In other words, there are parts of life that are constantly new, constantly fresh, constantly being changed and modified and discovered and adjusted. And then there's another whole area of things where, where, where nothing changes at all. What are some of the things that don't change? The things that do change, you all know, we all recognize, they're easy. But what are some of the things that don't change? Well, that uh, we all have to eat, we all have to have a shelter to stay warm, we all have to be able to drink water. Uh, in other words, we all have to wrest a living from an often reluctant earth. That's true for all of us, and it's always been true. Always. And so I don't need the Torah to tell me about how to uh, convert a two-engine intercontinental airplane into a load-carrying airplane and enlarging the fuselage like the Airbus Beluga, which is the most grotesque-looking airplane you've ever seen. You wouldn't believe the thing can fly, but aeronautical technology makes it work. I don't need the Torah to tell me that because I or engineering associates, my fellow human beings, will figure that out. But I do need the Torah to tell me uh, how much of my time ideally should I devote towards uh, taking care of uh, my physical needs? How much should I devote to taking care of my desire to have a better understanding of how the world works? How much of it should I spend uh, with my wife and with my children? These are questions that have always been uh, things that have bothered human beings. Um, something else that has never changed, and I don't think is going to change, is that uh, when we do succeed with task number one, when we do succeed at overcoming the major problems of keeping alive, when we are assured of a, a place to live and stay warm and secure and to have enough to drink and enough to eat, what tends to happen is that um, we tend to become uh, indulgent and, and morally weakened. We, we lose something. Uh, that affluence towards which we have struggled for so long invariably leads to a decadence. And this is as true in the United States of America today as it was in Babylon of uh, 2,600 years ago. Um, we know that... Um, uh, most of us experience an almost irresistible attraction to the opposite sex. That was true 2,000 years ago. It was true 3,000 years ago. It was true for Moses, and it's true for me. It is also going to be true for my 
children and maybe my grandchildren one day. It's, it's just going to be. That is an unchanging aspect of human nature. Uh, something else. We all seek the power and the security that comes from money. Uh, we all seek the approval of other people. These are just a few of the things, a far from exhaustive list, a few of the things that don't change in the human experience. They don't change. And uh, these are the things for which we turn to God. These are the things for which we turn to ancient Jewish wisdom. Because, yes, I do turn to the latest issue of technological magazines. I, I love reading technological magazines in many, many fields. Um, as you could tell, aeronautics is on my mind. I've been reading aeronautic magazines recently. I like knowing what's going on in the cutting edge. Uh, I like reading about artificial intelligence. I've spoken about self-driving cars on the show. That was something else I studied. I like all that. Um, but when it comes to understanding uh, how I should relate to, to my sister, uh, who's undergoing certain issues, or I need to know how to relate to a child of mine who has a problem. Those things I don't turn to the latest issue of psychology today or technology today. No, for that I go back to the manufacturer's instruction manual because those are the areas that don't change. Um, you know, there's, um, there was that book by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. That was his most popular book, and he's written a number of other books as well, uh, Clever fiction books, if you enjoy that kind of thing. And um, he just recently um, made the proclamation that mankind is reaching the point where he no longer needs a, a god in the sky. He, uh, mankind today is going to use artificial intelligence and a collective consciousness to replace God. I don't know what a collective consciousness is. I have to confess to you. I've absolutely, I mean, it's a nice phrase. I mean, you know, it's easy to throw around and, uh, and to good effect. Um, it's a little bit like uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, right? If you remember Mary Poppins. Uh, it's a great word to throw around and have everyone think you're awfully smart, but a collective consciousness. <laughs> but anyway, that's what Dan Brown thinks is now replace God. I don't think so. And, uh, and uh, all of this, my friends, brings us to, well, I'm afraid so, Harvey Weinstein. That's right. I don't see a way of ignoring uh, something which has, has absolutely dominated the news. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. But nonetheless, there are very interesting aspects to the entire Harvey Weinstein imbroglio. And I'm going to tell you uh, what some of these factors are just as soon as we come back. Again, a reminder to please visit the website. Imploring, that's right, uh, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, you know what else you can do there? You can make sure you're on the mailing list that we put out. It's, it's funny, every now and then um, people ask me questions of things that I've just answered in our Ask the Rabbi feature or in our Thought Tool feature. And I say... The whole reason I write these things with my wife and send them out is because I cannot, I simply don't have the time to respond individually to each and every person who has a question. So that's what we do. So please, uh, just subscribe, 
get these things. If you don't like them, just delete them. But, uh, but at least that way, when questions and issues crop up that I deal with, and I try to deal with things that appeal to the largest number of people, uh, you've got them. All of this you can find at rabbidaniellappin.com. You'll also find special deals on resources that we create, bringing ancient Jewish wisdom to bear on the real-life issues you struggle with in the areas of friendship and family, in the areas of finance, and, yes, in the areas of faith as well. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over there, and I'll be right back with you in just a moment. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I'm absolutely delighted to remind you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is that uh, human courage and bravery are rare. The default condition is cowardice. And uh, people constantly come up with rationales for cowardice, explanations for their cowardice, excuses for their cowardice. Political correctness, by the way, is one of them. Oh, I've got to be politically correct. Uh, another one, just to give you an example, is pacifism. Oh, I believe in peace. And what that does is excuse your cowardice. Uh, and, you know, I mean, we, we all, I mean, how many times have you uh, just tried to avoid a confrontation, um, even though you knew you had it, and you know what, inevitably you end up having to deal with it at a worse time under worse conditions, uh, rather than dealing with an issue that just needed to be dealt with at, at the right time. Look, we're all, we, we, our default condition is, uh, is cowardice. It's just a sad human fact. And one of the main sources of courage happens to be Judeo-Christian faith, Bible-based faith. But uh, one thing is for sure, my friends, and that is that courage and bravery mean doing things that carry a cost. No courage and no bravery is required to do an action that is going to be rewarded. That doesn't take courage. That doesn't take bravery. Courage and bravery are things you do at risk. Courage and bravery are things you do when there could well be a price to be paid. Courage and bravery are the things you do when there will be a price to be paid. Yes, talking about Harvey Weinstein, my friends, let me be very clear about this. You know what? I withdraw that, that phrase. I think President Obama used to use that, and I, I, I grew to detest and loathe the phrase. So I withdraw that entirely. Let me state unequivocally that there is no bravery whatsoever in sticking a knife into the bleeding body of a harpooned whale lying helplessly on the beach. There just isn't. Right, if, if you read Moby Dick, Melville's great novel, and you get a sense of what the whale industry was like. Look, I, I hate the idea of killing whales. I really do. Uh, and I, 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 I don't, you know, it, it's what people did. The world ran on whale oil. But this, I think we'll all agree, 
and that is that there was real bravery. Uh, these guys, the whaling ship would lower a small boat and would be rowed frantically by the whalers, and in the bow is a guy with a harpoon. And we're, not, we're talking about before explosive uh, firearm harpoons. This is a harpoon that had to come so close to the whale that he had to drive this harpoon into the body of the whale, and it was attached to a rope, and this was attached to the, the little boat, and the idea was then to just tire out the whale until they could finally, okay, look, it's, it's bloody and painful and horrible, but um, nobody can deny that that took bravery. But once the, the whale is harpooned and he's dying on the beach, a bloody mess, helpless, for then, for somebody to run up and say, me too, me too, and to stick a knife into the whale, that's not bravery. And I think you know where I'm going with, uh, with Harvey Weinstein on this. Um, it's, uh, there have been uh, so far about 30 claims of Harvey Weinstein assaulting or unwantedly propositioning or raping or whatever, touching, all of these things that Harvey Weinstein has done, all these horrible things. And... Uh, it may well be, in fact, it's quite probable that between the time I am uh, saying these words and recording these words for you to listen to and the time you actually hear it, who knows, there'll probably be another 25 lurid claims and charges and allegations, um, quite possibly. The story is not over yet, uh, although I think most likely Harvey Weinstein is probably over. I think it's very unlikely that uh, he's coming back for a second act. But, um, but still, there are a number of questions to understand on this story. Uh, for, you know, to, to merely uh, engage in the salacious gossip and to read the unpleasant details, this does no good to my eyes, it no, does no good to my soul, it does no good to my spirit. Uh, there's no point in that. But in order to look at it a little more deeply, in order to gain some meaningful information about the entire sad and sordid episode, um, I think there are three questions we have to ask. The first one I want to ask is, why now? One of the things that's been established to, to my fascination is that this has been known about for a while. The New York Times wants all kinds of kudos and bravery awards for uh, releasing the story. But the fact is that we now know that the New York Times knew about it two years ago. And uh, we know that NBC knew about it and quashed the story uh, repeatedly over the course of several years. Uh, we even know, people knew that his contract with his company, his employment contract, actually specified how um, payouts would be handled. In other words, when a settlement had to take place and Harvey Weinstein had to pay uh, somebody whom he had wronged in this fashion, uh, it was two years ago his contract already specified that uh, he, he would pay this and that there'd be a fine of that. And, uh, it was quite, it was well known that this was the modus operandi of this particular Hollywood producer. People like um, uh, Paltrow and Jolie, actresses like that. Look, these people have been untouchable for years. Uh, 
Jane Fonda, right? These are very powerful, famous, wealthy people. They need nothing anymore from anybody. They, they've really, they've got everything they could possibly want. Well, not everything they could possibly want, but they're certainly untouchable. They're bulletproof. Tell me something. Why didn't these people two years ago, they knew about it. Why didn't these people, how come none of them got up at an Academy Award? And instead of mouthing meaningless platitudes, why didn't one of them get up at the Academy Award and say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have to say something. It's not going to make any of you happy. It's going to make one of you miserable. But I believe the time has come for me to talk about the, uh, the rapacious and predatory behavior of one of our own, the, uh, the famous Harvey Weinstein. Why did nobody do that? Shall I tell you why? Because that would have taken bravery. That's why. It's as simple as that. That's why they didn't do it. That would have taken bravery. What? Nobody did it before. They waited until he was a harpooned carcass lying helplessly on the beach. And then they ran up to stick their knives in as well. That's why now. But why not before? Well, because A, it would have taken bravery. B, he was a liberal benefactor. He was a major liberal benefactor. And one of the reasons that uh, Hillary Clinton and the Obamas took so long, so long to respond, right? Hillary Clinton was able to respond instantly about so many things. Oh, she knew everything. Uh, Barack Obama saw racism in everything right away. He, he had so much to say within minutes of the Trayvon Martin inc incident, for instance. But days went by before the Clint uh, Hillary and uh, the Obamas had anything to say about Harvey Weinstein. You know why? Because they were in meetings with their lawyers and crisis uh, counselors because they knew full well that the media would very quickly pull up instances of them singing the praises of Harvey Weinstein. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Of course. And uh, they, didn't, they didn't do anything before because Harvey was a liberal benefactor to the tune of millions of dollars. And the truth is that uh, when you take and accept money or favors from somebody, not only do you get blinded to their faults, but you actually owe them something, you know. There's something reprehensible and ugly about accepting money from somebody, accepting favors, allowing somebody to be your benefactor, and then turning on them and kicking them in the teeth. Something reprehensible and ugly about that. And so, not surprisingly, uh, these people uh, didn't quite know how to deal with it, but still, why didn't they say something a year ago, two years, five years ago? Why not? Because he was a liberal benefactor. So why now? What's changed? Well, what's changed is something very interesting. And uh, it's a little bit like the Cain and Abel story. It's a story of fraternal jealousy. Let me unpack that for you just as soon as we come back. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I am your rabbi. And uh, I make available to you resources, which you'll find on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. 
Uh, you'll also find that if you want to submit a question to our Ask the Rabbi column, please go ahead. Um, if you want to read through uh, huge numbers of previous questions that we've answered on the website, all of that, rabbidaniellappin.com. Please head over there, and while you're there, uh, drop a line to us on the Contact Us tab, and uh, let's hear how you're doing and uh, what are things like in your life. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand. It doesn't matter if he is a, able to play a mu musical instrument. It doesn't make any difference if he's a philosopher. It doesn't make any difference if he's a scientist or a doctor, because all those people during World War II committed horrendous atrocities. What you really are interested in only is one thing, and that is his belief system. Does his belief system prohibit him from knocking a stranger on the head with a brick? Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hello, everybody. Um, I started off today's show telling you about the, uh, the strange juxtaposition that I've been experiencing this week, uh, celebrating the holiday of Simchat Torah, the holiday uh, commemorating and celebrating the arrival of God's message to mankind. At the same time, the news media of the world were going ballistic about Harvey Weinstein. And this juxtaposition between scripture and Weinstein, as startling and uh, as absurd as it might appear, uh, I actually felt was an opportunity to gain a deeper insight into, that's right, how the world really works exactly that is the uh, the the theme of today's show and why it was that i started off with uh, how significantly the uh, torah is regarded by so many people who could hardly be more firmly entrenched in the world of modernity in other words uh, the more forward looking you are the more helpful it is to have reliable, unchangeable data on the things that really matter. And so we're taking a look now at the Harvey Weinstein story, looked at, as I always do on this show, through the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom. And for this, we go all the way back to the story of Cain and Abel. That's right. Fraternal jealousy is an old, old story. And so... Uh, uh, I've never had any dealings with Miramax. I've never had any dealings with Harvey Weinstein. I have had dealings with a Disney company which owned Miramax for a while, I think. Uh, I, I did do some consulting for them um, on a movie a number of years ago. Um, that's for another story. But uh, as, as far as what's, what's going on here, if I would have been... Um, asked uh, to provide uh, business advice or guidance to the Miramax Corporation, one of the things I would have done right away is I would have probed the relationship between Harvey Weinstein and his brother Bob. And uh, I've been uh, involved with uh, other companies where siblings started the company. 
and, uh, and I've had to explain to the principals of the company that not everything resolves economically. In other words, you cannot establish the principles or the problems or the um, uh, paradigms of a functioning business and its management entirely on the basis of share structure or share price or uh, market niche or market saturation or all of this or cash flow or balance sheet or, or assets or capitalization because businesses are run by human beings and human beings are human beings and we are not just socioeconomic machines uh, we are bodies and souls that coexist in a sometimes uneasy partnership and the more alignment that you can establish between your body and your soul the smoother your life operates but when it comes to a business and there are siblings particularly two boys I always have observed that this needs to be nailed down. We need to take a good look at that because without question, there are going to be uh, beneath the surface certain tensions roiling. Now, look, lots of brothers get on wonderfully. Lots of brothers love each other. Uh, and depending on family dynamics and how you were raised and, and uh, very much the role of the mother, uh, there are a lot of these factors, but the bottom line is that fraternal rivalry is very standard. And even in situations where brothers seem to love one another and help one another, there is very possibly still a strong competitive streak beneath the surface. Sometimes it's, it's rooted in a struggle for who will be dad's favorite son, uh, but a lot of the stuff is, is subconscious. A lot of it sometimes never surfaces. But I believe it to be sheer folly to run a business in which two brothers are involved without at least paying some attention to what the relationship is between those two brothers on the deepest possible level. I would have looked, and yes, look, with hindsight, obviously, things are easier, but I never ever looked at Miramax before because I had absolutely no interest in it. But had I been involved, one of the things I would have looked at is that nobody ever hears about Bob. Everybody hears about Harvey. And then I would have broken down the company a little bit, and I would have discovered that Harvey does the publicity-gaining movies. Bob does the money-making movies. Now, very often, Harvey's movies, after he was able to nurse them through Academy Awards, was able to make money. But generally speaking, the bulk of the money that was being made in this company was being made by Bob Weinstein. Bet you never heard of him. Harvey Weinstein was the one you always saw on the red carpet, uh, squiring actresses around, uh, gorging himself at a restaurant. Harvey Weinstein was the public face of, of He was the hero. I don't think I ever even saw a picture of Bob Weinstein at the Cannes Film Festival. Harvey Weinstein not only spends a lot of time in the south of France, 
but was always meticulous about being extensively photographed there, always with an attractive-looking woman next to him, maybe more than one. Tell me something. Don't you think that no matter how much of a saint he was, don't you think Bob might start wondering to himself, hello, I'm the one whose movies make all the money that Harvey spends making these exotic movies, and he gets all the credit. I'm the one doing all hard work. Don't you think it's possible that Bob was thinking that? Well, it turns out that uh, he was. And it turns out that, uh, I don't know for how long, but I do know that he's been waiting for quite a while for an opportunity to finally get rid of Harvey. There are all kinds of indications that this isn't even just Cain and Abel, but that there was a deep loathing there and that uh, Bob actually had been looking forward to an opportunity to kill off Harvey and much better than actually murdering him is allowing him to die a slow, torturous death, bleeding on the beach. And that's exactly what Bob's managed to pull off. And so in answer to my question of why now, one of the answers, the last of the answers I'm giving you is that um, this was the moment that Bob was ready to pull the trigger. This was the moment that Bob was ready to share information with journalists, to put journalists on the track of certain women, to speak to women and encourage them to talk to journalists. Basically, Bob pulled the trigger and everybody joined in to stick their knives into the bleeding carcass on the beach. That is why now. But um, we move on to another question. This question is interesting. I think they all are actually. But um, you'll notice that very few of these women making allegations against Harvey Weinstein have any evidence. As a matter of fact, several of them have announced rather angrily that they are the evidence. Look at me, said one of them. I'm the evidence. When somebody said, do you have any evidence of this sort of thing, that these things happened to you? I am the evidence. In other words, there's widespread outrage that anybody would even cast doubt on a woman who alleges sexual assault misconduct, impropriety, rape, anything else uh, towards a man. Well, that begs the question of why were the women not believed who charged Bill Clinton with exactly the same things? And that's why I think the story of Harvey Weinstein is not really the story of Harvey Weinstein. It's the story of Harvey Weinstein and Bill Clinton and many other people as well. Because if women must be believed, and the uh, careers of many men on the university campus in America today have been utterly obliterated because of charges of rape on the part of many women who simply regretted allowing themselves to be defiled and violated by going drunken to a man's room 
in a man's sorority, fraternity. So um, the argument has always been a woman has to be believed. No woman would claim rape if it didn't really happen. That's the claim. But wait a moment. What about all the women who claimed rape against Bill Clinton? They were not only not believed, but they were vilified, humiliated. In some cases, their lives were ruined. Why? So perhaps, after all, this isn't about women at all. Because if it's all about women, and women have to be believed when men abuse them and maltreat them, then it would seem that that should apply to all women. And two years ago and five years ago, no women brought charges against uh, Harvey Weinstein because they wouldn't have been believed then. Because Harvey Weinstein was a bastion of liberalism and a major benefactor of liberal causes. Big difference. So this is, um, is really not just about Harvey Weinstein. This is a much broader story. It's a comprehensive picture of what has really been going on in the United States since when? Well, you know already. Uh, we've spoken about it on the show many times uh, since the early 1960s. That's when it all started happening. What started happening? I'll come back to that in just a moment. But uh, we, we have to understand that if this was really about women, and this is now a time where we have to stand up and make sure that women don't have to put up with all of this kind of thing. Well, no, that's not. This is all smokescreen. This is all camouflage. It's not at all what it's about, because had it been, then we would have done something about the way Bill Clinton treated women. But we didn't. And we understand exactly why. The third point is that um, this uh, Harvey Weinstein story is, is the tip of the iceberg. It is something that has been going on extensively, and it's been a part of business uh, you might remember the uh, AMC television series Mad Men. And, uh, and you saw there, and, and that was a remarkably accurate depiction of the advertising industry during the 60s. That's what it was like. Right? There's nothing at all that happened to any of these women and Harvey Weinstein that didn't happen to secretaries and associates and, and all kinds of women in the advertising business and elsewhere as well. Because what you're going to find over the weeks ahead is that women in all kinds of businesses and industries are going to step forward and tell the horror stories of what they had to put up with. And by the way, I'm, I'm sorry for them. Right? I, I don't think it's lovely. Uh, but then again, I don't think men should be louts. I think men should be governed by a moral code. But wait a sec. You did away with that in 1960, in the early 60s and on into the 70s. You obliterated that moral code. And Harvey Weinstein is just one particularly egregious example of the men you produced. And I'm not speaking to you, the listener. I'm speaking to you, American culture. This is what you wanted. You wanted to strip religion away from the behavior of men. What do you think has served 
as an effective restraint on the loutishness of the unvarnished male for thousands of years. What has it been but religion? And so Harvey Weinstein is what you asked for. And Harvey Weinstein is what you got. Okay, quick break. And um, uh, when, we, when we come back, um, we'll get to my conclusion. I mean, after all, if Hillary Clinton can comment on Harvey Weinstein and the Obamas are going to comment on Harvey Weinstein, how about your rabbi commenting on Harvey Weinstein? I'll do that as soon as we get back. Our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Am I going to beg you to go there? No, of course not. Am I going to beseech you to go there? Of course not. I'm going to implore you to go to rabbidaniellappin.com where uh, you will find all kinds of resources in the areas of faith, family, friendships, and finance, including some things that are on offer, especially for listeners to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Stop in there and also make sure that you are subscribed to the various mailing lists. Maybe you want to receive the Ask the Rabbi, which is usually a fascinating question every week we answer. Uh, sometimes you want to reach for Susan's Musings, where uh, Susan is um, delightfully unrestrained and, um, and very frank and candid in how she evaluates uh, culture and politics in America today. Or you might want the Thought Tools, uh, hardcore ancient Jewish wisdom on today's issues. So all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Don't hesitate. Be back with you in just a moment. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson. You know, one of the saddest things about this, too, right now is Bill Cosby going, damn, I'm going to have to drug him. I'm going to have to drug him. I know. <laughs> I, did, I just had a whip So you're saying they would just stand there and watch? Here I am buying some Mickey's. That's right. I'm out there buying roofies on the street like a criminal. And this guy's just like, whoa, let it fly. The Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks for joining us here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show for the last segment of today's show. And I mentioned earlier that 1960s, early 60s, uh, were a good date to identify as the beginning of a transition into this modern period in which we're now living. And, and here's what happened there. What we're looking at is that in the 1960s, the people coming of age at that point, uh, and these, these were people who... Uh, uh, are, were the children of the last generation in America raised with respect for traditional and biblically-based values. However, they were unable to pass these values onto their children. And there's a reason for that as well, which I'm going to talk about at a different time. It doesn't fit into the format of today's show. But what is clear is that uh, these children who were coming of age in the 60s uh, were born right, in, in the 40s. 
And uh, they were born to a generation that was very comfortable with prayer in public school. They were very comfortable with the idea, of the, you know, that was a Supreme Court ruling still, absolutely, prayer in public school. Why ever not? Who did it ever hurt? They were people who were very comfortable um, with the idea that parents are the prime responsible parties for a child, not the state. Um, these were people who, above all, were comfortable with the idea that America is a Christian country and that the entire strength of America, its durability, its vitality, and its economic exuberance came directly from the fact that America was indeed built on Judeo-Christian biblical values. The parents of those people who rioted at the universities in 1968, the parents of the people who uh, rioted at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968, the parents of these children were people who were, above all, comfortable with the difference between men and women. They understood that men were to protect women. They understood that men were to honor and cherish women. They understood that men were responsible for women. They also understood that um, if, a, uh, if, if a foolish youth were to behave inappropriately to your daughter or your sister, you would go and deal with him. It might take a baseball bat, it might take fists, but the neighborhood would know that your daughter or your sister was off limits. They were not to be abused, not to be disrespected in any way. That's what they knew. But they were not able to convey that to their children. And so that generation came of age in the 60s, not only unaware of Judeo-Christian values, not taking them seriously in any way at all, but even mocking them, ridiculing them. And that was the first time in American history that we found jokes mocking traditional values. Well, in addition to this fundamental challenge to American society was also the shocking change that came about with the idea that human beings were changeable. In other words, one of the principles, and this is why I started off talking about uh, the holiday of celebrating the Torah in Jerusalem, one of the underlying principles of Judeo-Christian Bible-based values is that there are certain things that don't change. Men and women don't change. The attraction they feel toward one another don't change. The fact that women can easily be abused by men doesn't change. The fact that men are going to seek out sex in every possible way doesn't change. Well, since we were in the process of rejecting all Judeo-Christian Bible-based values in the 60s, obviously, if the Bible says these things about humanity don't change, then we take the position they absolutely do change, and it's our job to change them. 
And so that was the beginning of this idea that sex was exactly the same for men as it was for women. Nothing other than a neurological sneeze in the spinal column. That's all it is. And women feel it, men feel it, and uh, it's only society that has imposed on women a complete and uh, unrealistic modesty. In reality, women should seek out sex just as much as men do, and they should behave just as much as in, in the same way men do. And, and again, you, you're all familiar with the stuff. This was all being promoted in the 60s, and, um, and the idea was, was so natural that had Hugh Hefner, the uh, lately departed Hugh Hefner, had he come up with his idea of the Playboy and the Playboy philosophy, had he come up with that in 1950, <laughs> he'd have been laughed at. He, he would have been bankrupt. Nothing would have happened. In 1940, don't even dream of it. But he picked the right time. He just happened to be on the right wave of history. And that was what... You know, every issue of Playboy magazine carried not only pictures, but the Playboy philosophy. And so it made men feel that they were imbibing cultural values and it was important. And, oh, the pictures were very artistic and beautiful as well, very seductive. But it was the Playboy philosophy that validated and justified everything that they felt, everything that they desired, everything that every hormone in their lust-driven bodies attracted them towards. And all of this worked because it came about exactly when Bible-based traditional values were being trashed, obliterated, mocked, and ridiculed. It all fitted perfectly. And so what resulted is that um, people then began to uh, congregate. And why? Well, part of it had to do with the interstate highway system. And up till then, what used to happen is people, first of all, not everyone went to college. People who went to college used to go to local colleges. People stayed at home. They went to college. Transport around the country wasn't what it was today. You didn't jump on a plane and fly across the country. You didn't jump in a car and uh, drive 500 miles to another city, which one can do today with, with ease, right? And, uh, and I mean, you can, you can do that, you can do that today in, in, you know, eight, nine hours. It's, it's remarkable. This would, would have been just a far off dream uh, in the 50s and early 60s. And all of a sudden, what came about through the highway system was that people went away to college, and you had certain colleges emerging as um, specialist colleges. And it didn't take long. It was, it was less than a generation before the uh, newspapers and uh, certain businesses and magazines and entertainment sought to hire people from just a relatively small group of colleges, many of them congregated in the Northeast, some of them in San Francisco and Los Angeles. But by and large, all of a sudden, those people who were influential in the culture because of the positions they occupied in the universities they attended, all were thinking the same way. And they all had exactly the same idea that was being taught to them by their teachers who came of age in this period of, of uh, um, vanishing away the Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, they grew up and started influencing others in exactly the same way. And so the cool with it 
uh, cult-like following of uh, people who allow their ideas to be generated by others all began to adopt exactly the same approach, which was essentially a, uh, an aggressive and vigorous secularism. Uh, it was not only a rejection of biblical faith, but it was a ridiculing of biblical faith. And so um, what happened was that uh, in the early 60s began this project of remaking humanity. Uh, far from this biblical idea that we're primitive, unchangeables, we can evolve. And just because evolution took millions of years to get from primitive protoplasm to baboons and human beings, it doesn't have to stop there. We can push forward and evolve into a new society without sexism and a new society in which men and women can be exactly the same. Well, the problem is that it's all false. And the problem is that when a, um, a woman gets drunk and goes home with a man and has sex with him, the next morning, the man feels great. He feels terrific. He wants to bounce down the road beating his chests. But the woman feels humiliated and mortified. On college campuses, there's something called the walk of shame. And this is on Sunday, early Sunday morning. Women walk home across the campus from the men's uh, dorm to their own dorm, still dressed in their Saturday night party outfits. And it's called the walk of shame because no woman, very few women, I would say, bounce across the campus shouting whoopies and throwing their arms in the air and giving high fives when everybody who sees them knows that they spent the night with a man. They don't feel good about it. It's one of the reasons that, and I've discussed this before on the show, uh, we've spoken about why it is you hear so many more instances of women teachers having relationships with male students at high school when everybody knows, and the information is out there, that uh, far, far, far more men teachers have relationships with women, uh, with female students, the answer is very obvious, and that is male students who have sex with a hot teacher talk about it. But female students who had sex with a teacher are embarrassed, and they keep quiet. This is after 50 years, more than 50 years, of trying to remake humanity hasn't worked very well. Men and women are still the same. Anybody with sense in his head, anybody with the slightest awareness of the, immutab the immutability of human nature as taught in the Bible, knows that if a, a man goes on a business trip with a woman and they stay at the same hotel, there is every likelihood of a problematic relationship developing. Every likelihood. Everyone knows this, excepting the HR departments of American corporations today that will rigorously punish any manager who is reluctant to send a man and a woman representative or salesman or lawyer or anything to a business trip. And again, if, if your spouse is going on a business trip with somebody of the opposite sex, you'd be absolutely right to be extremely concerned and worried because human nature has not changed. And so what we've done 
is created a society that has produced Harvey Weinstein. But it's not just produced one Harvey Weinstein, it's produced millions of them. It's just that Harvey's brother wanted to get rid of Harvey, and so we all know about it, because Harvey is a guy who never missed an opportunity to get in front of a camera. Harvey loved the public adoration, and of course he's now paying the price for that. And so uh, where uh, the traditional view, a Bible-based view that has always informed American society, says that men and women are different, the new culture since the early 1960s has to have said, well, no, men and women are exactly the same. But the problem is, where are all the male victims of female Harvey Weinsteins? Because if men and women are exactly the same, surely the country should be crawling with poor victimized men who worked for a powerful female executive who made an improper comment to him or touched him inappropriately or raped him. Where are all these men? The answer is they don't exist because women do not pursue sex as aggressively as men do. Women do not pursue power as aggressively as men do. Women do not abuse power as aggressively as men will do. It's very simple. They think they've changed everything, and they try to change the rules, and then they get upset when the man that they have created acts in the way that a man who has been stripped of the rules and rituals and restraints of Judaism and Christianity behaves exactly as he would have been predicted to have behaved. Any one of you, along with me, who had been told in 1960, here's what we're planning on doing. We could have written the Harvey Weinstein script. It had to have happened. It has happened, but it's been happening. It's been happening for decades already. What it took was a confluence of factors, the fame of Harvey Weinstein, the visibility of the entertainment industry, the uh, vindictive and, uh, and uh, put-upon brother finally looking for his opportunity for a place in the sun. All of these things happened to come together. And uh, what are my comments on the, uh, on the Harvey Weinstein story? It's very simple. I have three comments. Number one, I didn't like him last week any more than I like him this week. I didn't like him last year any more than I like him now. As a matter of fact, I don't even dislike him more now than I did two years ago. I didn't ever like him. I never would have been interested in getting having anything to do with him. Nothing's changed in reality. Number two, I am embarrassed that he's such a visible Jew. I am truly mortified. I feel humiliated about the fact that the person who's going to go down in 2017 as the evil sexual predator of the year is such a visible Jew. I feel awful about it. I take it personally in the sense that I believe that had I and other rabbis been better than we are, 
had we been able to do what we ought to have been able to do, there shouldn't have been a Jew like Harvey Weinstein. Because even if American culture for, for 55 years has been trying to strip the uh, structure of biblical civilization out of the American male, we as rabbis should have been able to make sure that among Jewish men, those values remained. Well, they don't. We didn't. We failed. And yes, Harvey Weinstein, unfortunately, is Jewish. And he's far from the only Jew who behaves in this fashion. Far from the only Jew who behaves in this fashion. It's tragic. It's mortifying. I wish it weren't so. And the only possible consolation I give myself, and it's not much, I'll tell you, is that at least I know he was not dancing with the Torah on the holiday of Simchat Torah recently. That I can tell you for sure. Uh, his connection with the Torah is as much as, uh, as his connection with uh, uh, neurosurgery. Harvey Weinstein has zero connection with the Torah. Oh, he's an ethnic Jew. He knows how to make all the Jewish jokes and he uh, mixes. Yeah, I get all of that. But nonetheless, it's pretty bad. It doesn't make me feel happy. And my final and last comment on it is very simply that uh, I don't think this is about Harvey Weinstein. It is about the general collapse of a culture. It's about the clash of cultures in the United States of America where hundreds and hundreds of no, that, that's, that's not correct. Where millions of people do adhere faithfully to the tenets of Judaism and Christianity. Where millions of Americans fill the churches on Sundays and the synagogues on Saturdays, worship to God, and do willingly accept the restraints of biblical civilization on particularly male behavior. But I know that that's not what the majority in America is about. I know that the majority culture mocks and ridicules that view of life to which I subscribe and so many of you do as well. And uh, we watch. We watch the war go on. All based on this idea. Men and women are exactly the same. Well, ladies and gentlemen, they're not. And uh, the events of the Harvey Weinstein saga... I think prove that more conclusively than anything else that I could possibly say. Which means that all that is left on this show is for me, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, urging you to visit my website at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, wishing you a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.